Uh, with that, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to find the book of Job, all right? And, and if you have a Bible, you're going to kind of be skimming over it. We're going to look at the story of Job today. Um, our fall life groups have been going for about a month now. Uh, and I am part of the Alpha group, and I love Alpha. It tackles a lot of the, like, big questions in life. It, it talks about why am I a Christian, um, what are all these different things, and, and not only, like, talking about do I believe in God, but why? Why do I believe in God? So many of us, uh, maybe you were raised that way, and you reach a place where you're just like, well, I don't know, this is what I was always told. And so it, it kind of challenges us to t- t- take a step back and, and ask these big questions, and without fail... There's always this big question that I know is super common in our world. How can we have a good, loving, just God, and yet I can look around the world and see so much evil and suffering and and brokenness? Um, And it's seriously, like, if you've never wrestled with that question, then I don't know. Tell me how you have your faith, because that is just like... Uh, just an absolute core question that I think almost every person struggles with at some point. All right, like you can't open up your phone, you can't turn on the TV, you can't scroll for more than 10 seconds without seeing some type of brokenness in this world. And I think that this idea of suffering and brokenness, it, it does become one of the biggest like stumbling blocks for people believing in God. Um, if, if you go and if you like spend any time on um, like, Quora or like any of those types of things where people are asking questions, you will see this over and over. Biggest thing, biggest reason why I don't believe in God is because how can there be so much suffering? And so I want to take time together today and process through some of this idea of suffering and justice. Uh, but that's, that's going to kind of be where we start, and you're going to see it's going to begin to move uh, pretty quickly uh, into some other ideas here as well. And so I want to look at the story of Job. This story has brought comfort to people for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, but I do think we need to make sure we are approaching the story the right way. Otherwise, I think it's really easy to miss the application that the original author actually wanted us to have in this story. So uh, we're going to look at the entirety of the story. So I am not going to open up by reading the entirety of the book of Job. That would take this week and next week to like get through. So instead, uh, if you're willing and able, would you stand? I want to just open us up in prayer still. Um, just kind of before we move on in this, and then we'll begin to look at the story for more of a big picture kind of overview. So God, we just, we thank you for this time that we can come together. God, for this community. Lord, and so much of having community like this is about encouragement um, and having people come alongside us and, and be there for us and pray with us. But God, also, so much of community is this challenging of one another. God, of iron sharpening iron. And that it doesn't happen without things getting hit together and striking and pieces breaking off. And it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's a tough process sometimes. And God, I pray that we wouldn't only lean into the encouragement of community, but we would also open ourselves up just to that challenging um, just voice that, God, you have in our life and that we would be changed by this time. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, If you aren't familiar with the story of Job, let me give you a quick overview. The scroll of Job would be classified as wisdom literature. If you didn't know this, books of the Bible have genres, just like music have genres, movies have genres. The books of the Bible do too. And Job is wisdom literature. All right, now why does that matter? Well, it it matters because of what it isn't. And what it isn't is like a historical narrative. All right, and that's often, I think, our default because in America, in our modern world, so much of what we read 
um, we expect it to be written in this like historical way where everything in there is exactly how it happened. And just understand this, that is not at all how the original authors and readers of the Bible, like they did not understand everything. That was not their default. All right. And so this matters for us in the book of Job. This means that uh, when the author was writing this, the focus wasn't about getting every detail perfect or their intention was not to give the exact account necessarily of everything that happened. The purpose of wisdom literature was presenting the story in a way that allows people to learn and grow from it. All right. Now, this doesn't mean that it didn't literally happen. It, it maybe did. Like that, that's a very real possibility. And it could have been like, this is exactly how it happened. It could have been that Job was a real person that people knew. And then there was kind of this story that was attributed to his life. Um, the whole thing as a whole could have been understood as more of a parable, like the way Jesus taught. And what's important for us to realize here, I may be saying this, and right now you're like, Hi, where is he going with this? I've never heard this. This sounds like heresy. Uh, understand again, uh, this is actually really important for us to understand how these books were written. And the Bible is not any less true, accurate, or authoritative, like have the authority that it has, authoritative, that was the word I was trying to say, if it's not like literally 100% written in that way. Okay, so can we, maybe that's a new thing for you, but let's just, let's grasp that, kind of understand that. Um, it, it does not make this any less true, okay? Um, Job also takes place, like, so there's some of the things that kind of point us to this idea that maybe this wasn't meant to be 100% literal. Job takes place in a faraway land from Israel called Uz, all right? It's just kind of this, this distant land. Job is not an Israelite. The author is unknown, and the time that this book was written or the setting, like the time of when it actually is being talked about, we have no clue. So you can tell right away, if they were trying to do a historical narrative, they did a terrible job. Like the best we can figure out for time here is we don't see anything about laws or covenants or anything like that. We see Job act as a, like a priest to his family. So this probably says that this is before like Abraham. Like we're talking the first maybe 10 chapters, something like that in the book of Genesis. That that would be the setting of this story. All right, and it's like this on purpose because the author wants us focusing on what like we are learning from this story, not focusing on all the little details kind of around it, which I don't know about you, but I often tend to kind of get sucked into those details. And so this is just like how Jesus would teach with parables. It wasn't about the person in the parable or necessarily always where they lived. Sometimes that mattered for what you need to learn. It was about what are you trying to like learn out of this story. And I think we can figure out right away that this might not be 100% literal. Because at the beginning, we have this dialogue between God and his like divine counsel. Like these other people in heaven. And so... I don't know, maybe I guess someone was actually there to witness this dialogue and write all of it down. But you can kind of see, okay, right away, maybe this wasn't meant to be uh, that. All right, so let's not worry about that, though. That's not, again, this is still just as authoritative, and, and there's still so much to glean from this. It doesn't have to be literal. And so the first thing we see in the story of Job is we open up, and they're talking about Job, and often... In, in, in a historical narrative, you would see this is Job and his parents were so-and-so and their parents were so-and-so, their parents were so-and-so, his kids were these names and these were their kids and like you have all these genealogies. That's not what we have at the beginning of Job. You have Job 
And then it lists off how rich this guy is. All right, that's just a little bit different. And they're like, you have Job, and then he owns this many cattle, this many donkeys, this many camels, this many sheep. And he's basically the richest guy in the area, is what it says. That's kind of how this opens up. And so that should, that should tell us right away, that probably matters, because that's not normal for opening up a story in this type of writing. So, okay, so I need to know that he's rich. And then it goes on and says, he also has, like, huge integrity. Like, this guy lives the way he should. He's doing what he should. He's going above and beyond in these areas. So that, those are the two things. We know that, that he is rich, and we know that he has, like, more integrity than, like, anybody else around him. Then it goes into this heavenly dialogue, and God is going back and forth to someone called the accuser. And depending on your translation, it may say the accuser, New Living says the accuser, and then parentheses are like on a comma, Satan, which that's, that's what we're used to hearing. Now that word in Hebrew is, is the Satan. It's actually, it always says the. It wasn't meant to be a name, a proper name, okay? It, it's the accuser is what it is. And so the accuser is there, and having this dialogue, and, and God begins to brag about Job. And the accuser says, well, of course he's like so good. Look at everything he has. Who wouldn't worship you and follow you when they've been given everything that he has? He's the richest guy around. He better be like worshiping God. And what the accuser says is really important. And it's, it actually tells us how we should frame this book. And I think it's different from how we often think of it. And we are going to come back to it shortly. I want to kind of finish this, you know, here's the story of Job. So we, we understand that. Essentially... God gives permission to the accuser to take away the things that Job has to see if he's going to become upset with God or if he'll still obey him. Because that's kind of what the accuser said. Like, if he didn't have all this stuff, he wouldn't be loving you. He loves you because of what you've given him. And so he gives him permission and everything's taken away. Job is sitting there one day and he starts to have messengers come up and they're overlapping each other is kind of the way it's written. First one comes, he says, raiders came, they took all your cattle and donkeys, killed all the servants that were with them, only I survived. Then another guy comes and he interrupts them and, uh, and he says, um, the next guy says, all your sheep were just burned up, like fire from sky came and burned up all your sheep. That had to smell terrible. All right, and, and he said, and all the shepherds, they're all dead. I'm the only one that survived. And then another guy runs up and he says, all your camels were stolen by a different group of raiders and the workers were all killed. All of his wealth is gone just like that. Like you didn't have wealth in stocks or the bank. Like it was, it was livestock. He was a farmer. It's all gone and there's no insurance. Like his life just completely changed in this instant. And if that isn't bad enough, another guy runs up and he says, hey, all of your kids, because at the beginning of the story he says he has ten kids, all of your kids were together, they were eating, and a storm came, the house collapsed, and, and all of your kids are dead. So in this one moment, everything is taken away. And that's something that I think, we could understand that more nowadays, of like, I can get all this information immediately. I bring it up every week, and the one week I don't is the only week I need it.
Like, this is amazing that, like, even in the story, everything's timed out this way, that everyone will be running in from different places, dis- different distances, all overlapping each other. It all happened right there together. And Job responds by saying, I came into this world with nothing. God gave me everything I have. I'm not going to curse him if I no longer have what he gave me. Which is an incredible response that I can barely even fathom. So then round two happens. Because originally God said, okay, just don't, don't lay a finger on Job. And the accuser comes back and says, well, yeah, he still has his health. If he didn't have that, then he definitely would, would curse you. Round two happens, and, and Job gets incredibly sick. He has terrible boils from head to toe. Uh, I had, for a little over a year, I had hives from head to toe. And that was awful. Like, you are so incredibly itchy and all these things. That doesn't even come close to what, like, boils had to be. And he's sitting there, like, scraping his skin, it says, with broken pottery. I wanted to do that a few times. Like, I wanted to find broken pottery. But I'm like, it just itches so bad. And you see Job, and it's just this, like, awful existence that he has. And now the only person left in his life, his, his wife, is saying, forsake your integrity. Just, just curse God and die. Like, what kind of life is this? And he still just kind of stands strong in this. And it's interesting that she's like, don't worry about your integrity. Have integrity when life was fair. That's how a lot of people nowadays treat integrity. Like, I will, I will live in this, like, upright way as long as I'm being interacted with that way. But as soon as, you know, the other side, and whatever that means to someone, as soon as the other side starts playing dirty, well, the gloves are off then. If you're going to play that way, I'm going to play. And, like, we have this conditional integrity that we think can disappear when someone else doesn't have integrity. And that's it's almost kind of what you see in this spot here. And Job's like, no, like, this is, this is how I live. Following this, Job has friends that show up to console him. They just sit there with him without saying a word for a week, seven days. And then they begin to have this dialogue. And this is the majority of the book is Job and these friends going back and forth. And these friends are all from different distant lands. And it almost kind of seems like what the author's trying to do is he's bringing in the main idea, the main wisdom that the rest of the world had when it came to suffering. And they're bringing in these things and Job is like arguing back and saying, no, like that's not it. Because all these guys are like, well, you know, if you must have some sin in your life. Because if you were living the way you're supposed to, this wouldn't have happened. When you do good things, good things happen. And they're saying it because we serve a just God is what they keep saying. God is just. So everything that he does is just. All of this is true. But then they they take it a step further and apply it and say, if something bad happens in your life, it must be because you did something wrong. And Job is like, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. And this is a lot of the book. Finally, one last friend speaks up who is not an Israelite, but has an Israelite name, which is kind of interesting, and challenges all of them. And says, I don't think you're thinking about just in the way that you should, that justice is bigger than what you're thinking, and it, it can expound bigger than what you guys are saying. And the whole time Job's like, I just, I just want to talk to God. Like, I just want to make my case to God. I want to talk to him. I want to see him. And then he gets that opportunity. You have two dialogues back and forth between God and Job. And then the book kind of comes to an end. And, and God says to Job, he says, what, what do you know about justice on a cosmic and global scale? 
he starts to paint this picture of all the things in the world that God is intricately involved in. He says, what do you know about that? Where were you when I made this? Where were you when all these things happened? And Job just kind of ends up taking a step back and being like, yep, you're right, you're right, I'm... I'm in the wrong here. And, and it's this interesting thing, and then we have an epilogue at the end where, where Job is actually restored. Now, here's the thing. I, I want to go back to the beginning of this story because I think that a lot of us have probably heard the story of Job. We've tried to apply it before, and I think there's some things that we miss. So I want to go back to the beginning. Uh, I think we often unintentionally start by asking the wrong question from the beginning of the story. We often frame this story as a good person who is suffering. Like, why does a loving God allow a good person to suffer, right? Like that's kind of the opening question that I think a lot of us, we go to this book looking for that answer. And and here's the problem though. At, At no point in this book are we ever given the answer as to why Job suffers. Job isn't given that answer either. In fact, Job doesn't even know about the conversation that we know about with the accuser. God never brings that up and says, well, Job, if you just knew, like, I have all these other things. No, he just, he just puts Job in his place and says, you don't understand it. You don't have enough information. And he kind of leaves it at that. And so, and to say that, well, yeah, we have the answer. It's just, it was part of God's plan. Like, that's kind of a cop-out here, and it's really not what the author was wanting us to take from this story. So at the beginning of this story, it actually gets framed differently from that. You have the accuser approaching God and having this dialogue, and the question isn't, why does a good person have bad things happen? The question or hypothetical that the accuser poses is, isn't it counterproductive to bless those who are faithful to you? How can you actually tell if they are faithful because they want you or they are faithful because they want the blessings that you're giving? He says, isn't it counterproductive to to take the people that are following you and reward them the most? How can you tell why they're following you if that's what you're doing? So do you understand that, that subtle and yet profound difference in how to approach this book? All right? Is Job's relationship with God based on his overwhelming love and desire for that relationship? Or is it based on a system of rewards? Do this and I'll give you this. And this matters so much because this is the exact same question that every follower of Jesus needs to ask of themselves. Why am I following God? Am I following God because I want to have this relationship with him and that is purely it? Or am I following God because I have this idea in the back of my head that by following God, my life is going to be made better? And and that word better should kind of be in like quotations because depending on how you define better is really where all this comes down. Because I, I definitely do believe that my life is better, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same type of better as what we always think. You know, and so maybe you're like, oh no, I'm with you. I, I don't follow God just for rewards. Okay. Walk through this with me. Do you think that the more I become invested in God, the more I should see him move in my life? Right? Like, yeah, I think most of us would answer that as yes. I would as well. Okay, so then if we start to think of God moving in our lives as a purely positive thing, God moving means protection, means provision, means healing, means guidance, means prayers being answered. Now we have said, you know, A equals B, B equals C. 
A equals C. I'm following God, and I expect that my life is going to be more positive because of that. We think if I'm a follower of Jesus who attends church, you know, I, I give financially, I serve faithfully, I raise my kids to do the same, then in a way, I should see more prayers answered the way, the way that I want them answered. Like, that's, that's just kind of a mindset that can creep in on us. It's really easy to reject that when it's plainly put, but when we start to actually think about how subtly we might carry that, it's important. And it's, it's much more common than we want to admit that we think that way. And, and what does the accuser say? He says, isn't that counterproductive? Essentially, he's making the case that the more someone follows God, in a way, the less they should be blessed. It's the only way to see if they actually love God for who he is. And in some ways, that starts to kind of sound like the way that Paul talks. Which is a little weird to say that we are linking together the, the accuser, the Satan, Satan, you know, however you want to kind of phrase that. And Paul, but, but there's this idea that like, Paul's like, no, expect trials, tribulations, expect that things are going to go wrong in your life. Now, Job basically challenges this, and he says, why should God's most faithful servants suffer the most? And so you have these two opposing questions. This is actually what the book is like based around, is these two opposing questions. Because when I look at both of those questions, I honestly see the validity in both of them. I don't know if you do. But like, yeah, I can, I can follow each one of those questions and be like, well, yeah, if I, if I love God, if I'm faithful to God, if I'm following him, yeah, I think that there should be a little bit more in life. Like, I shouldn't suffer as much. I'm doing the right thing. Then the other side, I'm like, yeah, I totally get it. If, if doing the right thing also gets me rewarded, then how do you know I'm doing the right thing just for the right thing and not for the reward? And so these two questions is what the entire book is meant to battle these questions against each other. And what we are supposed to do is watch, actually, what does God do in the midst of this? How does he respond in these things? The other thing that I think should be changing how we approach uh, this question is the view uh, of the story of Job as, as, like, Job is this upright guy who is suffering. All right, like, we view him as suffering. And, and here's what I mean. Like, we begin to view Job as Job comes on the scene and he has this amazing life. With all these different things. All right? And then those things are taken away. And so we see Job go from here to here. But really, um, this is framed in a way at the beginning to tell you that everything that Job has is from God. And that's really important. All right? Like, this is not Job just worked really hard and got all of this stuff. And so when we reframe this to say, why should those who follow God prosper... It reminds us that everything Job had was because of God helping him prosper, not because of Job's hard work. And that's an important mindset for us to have. Everything we have is from God. He gave it to you. So if it disappears, you're just back to square one. You didn't go from here down here. You went from here to here to here. <laughs> that, that sounds small, but that matters. All of these ways that we approach things, like this matters. All right, who, who carries cash with them? Does anybody have cash today? Does anybody have like a, a $20 bill on them right now? Who's like somewhat close to me? You're in the front row. Can I have a $20 bill? 
I need to do that more often. <laughs> it's amazing. If you guys, great way to make 20 bucks. Now, in this moment, Lisa just lost $20. She came in, that $20 was hers. All right, now it's mine. Okay, now if I take this, say, Michelle, you want 20 bucks? Okay, she has $20. You know what, actually, I need that. Okay, right now, if I keep this, if this stays in my possession, who feels more cheated, Lisa or Michelle? Lisa does. Why? They both had $20 and lost $20, right? They both had $20 in their possession. They both lost $20. The difference is the mindset. To Lisa, this was her $20. To Michelle, this was $20 that she was given and then asked for it back. Big deal. I just started. I, I'm back to where I started. Do you guys understand like the difference in that? Thank you, Lisa. I'm going to give this back to you. With yeah, with interest. Yep. Okay, as silly as that is, do we understand why that mindset of what we have, is it mine? Is it from me? Is it from my hard work? Or is it from God? Because when things happen in our life and when we potentially lose something, one of those two mindsets is going to throw us into a bunch of anger and bitterness and, and frustration and the other mindset is going to be like, huh, okay. <laughs> I was just hanging on to it anyways. When we approach our life with, with and we have to have one of those two mindsets, don't, don't mistake that. Each one of us. It, it matters. Our attitude in life about how we view what is from God or from our own hand is massively important. Does that mean that you can't be sad when something is taken away or, or no longer there? No, you definitely can. You can still grieve those things. You can grieve it whether you have either one of those mindsets. But it, that matters. And so we, we keep seeing like these two opposing sides approaching God, these two different questions, saying, should a person that follows God have more blessings or less blessings, more suffering or less suffering? And that's the initial tension of this story, not why do good people have bad things happen to them. So the story of Job is about pressing into God and asking, how does God respond in these moments? It's about how we should think about God in the midst of our suffering. The focus is on him, not the suffering. And Job's friends talk about God's justice. He's a just God. So everything that God does must be run and based off of his justice. But the reality is we don't understand everything in this world well enough to be able to make a call of what is and isn't just. That's what God's speeches were all about. And this is, this is how a court case works. You have a jury sitting there, and they have to make a decision on what is just in that court case. And how do they do it? They try and get all the information they can. They bring in evidence, they bring in eyewitnesses, they bring in all these different things to try and get them to have the best picture of everything that happened 
Because you can't really say what is just and what isn't if you don't have all the information. And that's what, what God is saying to Job. You don't have all the information. You don't get to call what is just and what isn't. Because there's so much that you are missing. So we find out through the story that God is just, but how the world runs isn't necessarily based on our understanding of his justice. It's based on his wisdom. So even today, as we look at suffering, we can only see such a small picture. We don't have adequate information to make the call of what is and isn't just in our world. And in the end, for Job, like this is massive. And what I love about the story of Job is God is actually completely fine with Job responding to these things. He, he kind of draws the line and says, you can't say that I'm unjust. But Job having this entire like grieving response and calling out and saying, God, I, I want to hear from you. God is fine with that. All right, like even in the story, this is in, in verse 35, um, Job says this. He says, if only someone would listen to me, look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. When Job is reaching his lowest, his response is actually to say, God, I want to see you. I want to be closer to you. I want to hear this from you. And that matters because I think for a lot of people, if you find yourself in this spot where you've lost everything, a lot of people respond with more of an attitude saying, God must not be real, and if he is real, I don't want anything to do with him. And so it actually pushes them further away from God. And so the reason why God is completely fine with the way Job responds throughout this book, uh, you know, up to that line of saying, you can't call me unjust, you just don't have the information, is because this drew Job closer to God. That was his response in the end. I just want God. I just want to see God. I want to talk to God. If we are upset, if we are angry, if we don't understand, like, don't run from God. Try to figure it out so that you can, you can like, and, and try and figure it out so we can come back and approach God that way again. No, like, allow that to drive you closer to him. And when Job does this, when he finally is bringing it to God and speaking to him, Job's completely changed by that encounter. All right, it says this. Uh, Job says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job knew of God. He had heard about him, but to know God and experience him is totally different. There's a lot of people in our world, I would venture to guess, there's a lot of people in this room that you know of God. But to know God and to experience him is a different thing. And that's why you'll hear us say, like our, our hope today is that as a community, as individuals, that you would experience God in a new way. Because for me, when I experience God every single time, it changes me. That's, that's the only response I can have. It changes me. I can learn all about God. But if I'm not experiencing God like Job did, it's just a sliver of who he is. So what are we supposed to walk away with? 
All right, because today maybe just kind of took the story of Job and shifted the focus of it a little bit for you. All right, what, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, can a little shift like that really make a difference? Well, yeah, over time it can. Because if I'm a foot off of my mark of where I'm aiming at 10 feet, all right, like if I'm a foot off at 10 feet, I'm 10 feet off at 100, and I'm 528 feet off at a mile. Over time, these little differences, they matter. So I think there are two things I specifically want us to get. Uh, Maybe something else is jumping out to you today, and that's great. I love how God works that way, that he can speak to any one of us right where we're at. But the two things that I have for us, the first one is this. Everything we have is from God, and therefore we are just stewards of it, not owners. And this is an incredibly difficult mindset to adopt. But this will be life-changing if you figure out how to live this way. The $20 was just a gift to begin with. If you can figure out how to live that way, I'm telling you right now, it is going to change your life. And the, when the accuser, at the beginning of the story, he, he kind of, I think inadvertently, is helping us frame this correctly. He frames this not as a good person losing what is theirs. He says, you have made him prosper. You've given him everything. If you just take that back. And Job understood that. That's how you can have that response that he had when he lost everything. We need to have that type of understanding. And in a status and material-driven world that we live in, it is so hard. It's so hard, but it is crucial for us to be able to trust God. Second thing, are we truly pursuing God just for him or because of what we think he will do for us. And I think it's really easy to default right away and say, yeah, I'm, I'm pursuing God because of him. But how many of these little things, as we roll back the layers, we start to realize, ah, yeah, I have attitudes every once in a while when things don't go the way that I think that they should go. Like, God, I, I've been doing so much for you. All I'm praying for is this one little thing, and you can't do that. Like, we start to have this bitterness. And so if you want to know where you stand in this, ask this question. Is there anything in your life that could be taken away that would cause you to walk away from God? And that is a a really big question. I, I struggle with this question. I do. I know for me, like, In my, in my honest and raw moments with God, since becoming a father, I struggle with this around the idea of my kids. I do. And the best that I can come up with is every day I just try and wake up and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. Because it's really hard to just be able to live in a way where we say, you know, this is not about trying to live in a way that says nothing matters. Anything can happen in life and I don't care. I'm just going to keep a smile on and, and move along. That's, we're not called to live like that. That's not what's being asked of us here. And so this is hard, but it's important. You know, if your house burned down, everything in it, 
if the economy completely tanks, your retirement, your investments are gone, what would your response be? And anger and frustration and confusion and hurt, honestly, they're, they're all acceptable if we ultimately allow those things to push us closer to God. That's what we have to understand. You can have those emotions. It is all through the Psalms with David, constantly having those types of emotions, but he allows them to push him to God and draw him to God. Worship team, why don't you guys come? Why don't we stand across this room? I want to just kind of, this is is difficult. I want to just transition into a time of response. What we're going to do is this. We're going to sing a few songs here. I want to encourage you to not, if you don't have to take off right away, to just stick around as we just sing a couple songs, as we focus on God. It gives us a chance to actually take what maybe God is impressing on your heart. Maybe he's speaking something to you today and to allow that to kind of process inside of us. Because I know the second we walk out of these doors, the second we say amen, and the mood changes, and you know, it's not about trying to emotionally grab us, but when things change, we are so good as humans at immediately being like, I'm gonna get rid of these uncomfortable feelings and move towards comfort. And I'm gonna talk with my friends, we're gonna joke about this, and I'm gonna go to the deer stand, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna watch the Vikings game, be depressed because of the Vikings game. You know, I'm sorry. They're, I didn't put purple on there because we did that last week and he got hurt. But we're so good at moving from this place of uncomfortableness and I think we need to sit in this a little bit sometimes to allow God to speak to us and process these things. And so uh, I just wanna encourage you, um, you know, it's, we got five minutes left and what we would typically say is our time. We're gonna go a little bit over that, not a whole lot. And I'd encourage you, if you're able, stick around, process through this. God, what is it that you're trying to do in me? What in my attitude needs to change? How do I need to approach some of these things? And this is not to diminish some massive things that are going on in people's lives in this room. I know that. I know we have people in the room with physical ailments that are massive. This is not to say, hey, just slap a Band-Aid and a smile on it and, and grow up. That's not that at all. That's so far from what I'm trying to say. I'm saying, how do we allow these things to actually push us closer to God instead of drive a wedge in between us. Because that's what this book is about. Pastor Aaron, would you come and just help us transition here?